for a lot of us, Dr. Ethan Russo's groundbreaking paper called Taming THC that came out in 2011 opened our eyes to the power of terpenes and the entourage effect. This paper explained that THC was just one instrument in an orchestra, and the other cannabinoids, flavonoids, and terpenes were all key players in the medicinal properties of the cannabis plant. You may have enjoyed Shaping Fire episode 11, where we went through the Taming THC paper paragraph by paragraph with Ethan. Going through his paper point by point made the paper exceptionally accessible and gave Dr. Russo an opportunity to add anecdotes and jokes for everyone's benefit. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Recent videos have included Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profiles and my keynote address at the Imperius Expo in Phoenix about why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Massachusetts Medical School before residencies in pediatrics in Phoenix, Arizona, and in child and adult neurology at the University of Washington in Seattle. He was a clinical neurologist in Missoula, Montana for 20 years in a practice with a strong chronic pain component. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He joined JW as a full-time consultant in 2003. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana in medicine, at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. He is author of several books of cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Not only was Dr. Russo on episode 11 to talk about the Taming THC paper, but he was recently also a guest on episode 22, talking about healing traumatic brain injuries with a combination of cannabis and hallucinogenic mushrooms. Today, we're going to talk about Ethan's new scientific paper that dives even deeper into the healing powers of terpenes and the cannabis plant's other constituents. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Thanks. It's good to be back. So, you know, we're going to take our time going through the paper today, and I'm excited because there's a lot of new uh, terpenoids that are in the paper. And I know we talked a lot about uh, THC and CBD last time we spoke uh, during episode 11, but um, since we're going to be tying in THC and CBD throughout the rest of the show today, um, why don't we start with um, with your uh, kind of summarization of how THC and CBD relate to the health benefits of the terpenoids so that as we refer to them as, as we go through the paper, uh, people who are new to the topic uh, feel like they've got a good base. Okay, well, you know, 
to use a musical analogy, uh, quite often we could think of THC as being the soloist in an ensemble. Uh, we frequently talk about the different components of cannabis as an entourage, where the star is generally going to be THC or perhaps cannabidiol, CBD, with the other uh, supporting cast uh, being the terpenoids and perhaps the minor terpenoids. So that's one uh, analogy. Um, it might make some sense to talk about the plant as a whole and its components. So people are most familiar with the unfertilized female flowering tops, and that certainly is where you get maximum production of the cannabinoids and the cannabis terpenoids. Um, and why unfertilized? Well, when the plant is not putting its energy into producing seed, uh, it will produce more of these uh, secondary compounds uh, in its efforts to get fertilized. And when it is fertilized, if we have seeded cannabis, it produces uh, less than half of the cannabinoid content. Uh, we also hear a lot about people trying to use the fan leaves lower down in cannabis, uh, but in fact, they're a pretty poor source of cannabinoids. Uh, their content could be well under uh, 1%. In fact, uh, it was calculated as being 0.05%. Uh, so it really pales in comparison to what's in the flowers. One of the things that occurred to me while you were talking about the the seeded versus unseeded flowers is that while certainly um, cannabis cultivars or strains have gotten stronger over time simply because uh, breeders are, are breeding them to have um, a higher presence of THC, um, but it also occurred to me that in the old days, everything was seeded. You know, you really just only got... Uh, cannabis with seeds. And then so suddenly when people started uh, separating out the males, so seeding didn't occur, people probably thought that they were getting a lot stronger, more potent cannabis um, strains when actually it's just how the plant um, that they had gotten was using their resources. Sure, that'd be true and would be especially true unless the material was made from hashish that uh, could have come from an area where they took the trouble to cull the males previously or was actually ganja uh, from Jamaica where a similar uh, process had been undertaken. Uh, so certainly that could account right there for almost uh, a doubling or more of the cannabinoid content compared to the old time cannabis with seeds that uh, people may remember if they are of a certain age, such as the current speaker. <laughs> I think it's going to be really interesting as, you know, people are getting more and more interested in terpenes and historically growers have grown for THC, often ignoring the terpenes because they were kind of getting in the way of, of growing more THC since it's kind of a zero sum game in the plant oil itself. But now it'll be interesting to compare the kinds of highs when something is high in THC and lower in terpenes versus is you know what we're seeing more in the craft cannabis world now where people are um, not pushing as hard on the THC levels in order to get a uh, a wider terpene profile for all the medicinal and just quality of high benefits 
Sure. Well, Shangoid actually works both ways. Um, in the plant, we normally have a situation in the trichomes where you can get up to 60% of the content being uh, cannabinoids. And uh, it would be somewhere between 1% and 5% that would be terpenoids. And then there's some liquid and other components uh, from the cells that uh, produce these things. Uh, so generally, with breeding, you can get variability, but you're not usually going to eliminate one or the other component. However, in processing, particularly with the some of the concentrates that people are producing now, what we see is marked, marked elevation of the THC uh, content, even up to 90%, uh, with a relative dearth of the uh, terpenoids. Um, and, you know, many of us feel that that's undesirable for the benefits that they can offer, which we'll be discussing subsequently. Right on. So do you want to uh, do you want to talk a little bit at this point on uh, the THC's interaction with CB1 and CB2? Okay, well, we can sure do that. And we'll, we'll get into the other components uh, later, uh, talking about uh, seeds and sprouts and roots. Um, so it is uh, likely that most of our listeners are aware of the fact uh, that uh, THC is the main psychoactive component of cannabis. And most of those effects are mediated through what's called CB1, the cannabinoid 1 receptor, which is the psychoactive receptor. So it's very active in the brain, but in many other tissues uh, throughout the body, where it is involved in mediation not only of the high, so-called, of cannabis, but also pain control, emotional control, uh, seizure threshold, and a variety of other uh, parameters. And it's also active in the gut, uh, both in how things move through the, the body uh, and the secretion of fluids and many, many aspects of our physiology. There is a second receptor where uh, THC works called CB2. It is less active in the brain unless the brain has been injured or suffering inflammation from some condition. So this is uh, a receptor that's uh, intimately involved in the immune system as well as pain and inflammation. Uh, so THC also works on it and can exert benefits there. Um, beyond that, THC has some other effects that don't go through these receptors, uh, such as its anti-inflammatory effects that are um, mediated through other mechanisms. In, um, in the THC section, you have got uh, this wonderful figure showing the different parts of the cannabis plant. And I think for a lot of folks, um, they, 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 A, <laughs> have not usually, not usually seen males because, you know, so many people have tried to get rid of males out of their gardens. But also, I don't think a lot of people uh, think about the plant as, as a plant sometimes, you know, as, as, uh, through botanist eyes. Sure. Well, that, that's one reason we put the figure in, as well as to show different parts of the plants and what they produce, which is sometimes uh, the same components and sometimes totally different components is in the roots, as we'll discuss. Is there anything that you want to uh, point out in that figure before we move on to CBD? Well, let's take a look. Um, 
Well, uh, just that. We have uh, no production of cannabinoids in the seeds themselves once they've been cleaned and none in the roots. Uh, but these areas are both uh, important uh, for production of other compounds. With the roots, we have what are called triterpenoids uh, and actually some alkaloids. Alkaloids are the m more common kinds of chemicals that one sees in medicinal plants and for a hundred years people look for them in the cannabis flowers not to find any because they're they aren't there and that remains true to this day uh, then we've got the seeds which are really pretty amazing in their own right no cannabinoids again uh, no terpenoids either but we have a very digestible protein called edestin 35 percent uh, we also have a bunch of essential fatty acids. EFAs, so-called, are things that we absolutely need in our diet because they are, are components that our bodies can't synthesize themselves. Um, so uh, we've got to get these in our diet or there are going to be some kind of deficiencies that manifest. Uh, so that's another 35%. And there are a couple of med medical components even found in the seed coats, a thing called cannabis and B, and another one called caffeol tyramine, and both of these have some anti-inflammatory uh, aspects. And then I thought we should save the sprouts for later. Hopefully, we'll have time to get into that because I think there's an exciting finding in relation to them. I should actually make a note to come back to that because the paper is so long. The fact that we'll uh, come back around to it and remember at the end is, is probably pretty unlikely. <laughs> so now, now it's been added to the list there. So, okay. So, um, so if you're, are you complete with, uh, with the figures? Should we move on to uh, yeah, some I other parts? So. All right, great. So similarly, like, like THC, we talked a lot at length about uh, cannabidiol, also known as CBD, during episode 11 when we went through your Taming THC paper. Um, but but I, I, I know that you want to touch on it because uh, we'll be continually referring to CBD and its interaction with the other terpenoids as we go through the rest of the paper. Right. Okay, well, just a few salient points then. Uh, CBD, cannabidiol, in contrast to THC, is non-intoxicating. You may hear people say that it's not psychoactive, that it doesn't have mental effects, but this is quite inaccurate because it does have anti-anxiety effects and antipsychotic effects. Uh, the latter has been demonstrated now in two phase two clinical trials, uh, treating schizophrenics with this. Um, so uh, it's an important distinction. Now, in contrast to THC, because it does not produce intoxication, it doesn't have any drug abuse liability, so-called. In other words, people do not take it because they like it. It has no addictive properties. In fact, it, it has strong anti-addictive properties, and we're hoping that it will be utilized in the future in a clinical setting uh, for this kind of reason. A couple of other misconceptions, and these are particularly important because in the next year, it's highly likely that a can cannabidiol-based medicine called Epidiolex will be FDA approved in high doses for treatment of severe seizure disorders. Uh, so that's in the offing. But uh, along the way, there have been some misconceptions 
conceptions that have arisen. One is, and this is unfortunately a legal issue, uh, you will hear from some people that make cannabidiol from hemp refuse, which is a really poor source, um, that uh, this is legal in all 50 states. I'm afraid that that's inaccurate. And again, this is the way it is, not the way I would want it. There's no rational reason for cannabidiol to be a scheduled illegal product, but it is illegal in, in all 50 states. Uh, it's true to say that hemp stocks are not considered part of the contraband um, under the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, but if you read carefully, once somebody goes to extract chemicals from that material, it becomes illegal again. It's what's called uh, legally um, an exception to the exception. Uh, so that's a problem. Uh, additionally, uh, there was a recent report that indicated uh, that when CBD was exposed to strong acids, they used a simulated stomach acid situation uh, for a prolonged period, like an hour, that you could turn it into THC. Well, you know what? That really wasn't news. That same reaction was discovered in 1940. Um, but uh, there was an agenda to this because uh, the company that sponsored this research was um, – trying to demonstrate that CBD that was given by applying it to the skin uh, wouldn't have this problem of going through the stomach and turning into THC. In fact, CBD does not turn into THC in the body. Uh, there's no enzyme that can do that, and it doesn't hang around in the stomach for an hour um, to uh, have this reaction occur. Um, this has been proven because very high doses of THC, 600 milligrams or more, have been given to people, and they've specifically looked for THC afterwards, and it's just not there. Uh, so this is a dangerous misconception. It also um, seems a little far-fetched, you know, for anybody who's who has been working with or has been familiar with CBD. I mean, the fact that it doesn't degrade down to THC when, I, when <laughs> I, you know, it's. I mean, it's laughable if you're familiar with the plant. I, I when I when um, uh, when people first started talking about it again here in the last, I don't know, 18 months. Um, I, I was seeing it on social media. I'm like, well, that, that seems farcical. Why, why are we trying to debunk that CBD doesn't degrade to THC? And then, um, and then, you know, I looked into it. I realized uh, people were purporting that, but yeah, it's, it's surprising and laughable. Sure. So probably enough there. I'm, CBD remains an incredibly versatile uh, agent for treatment of a variety of conditions, and its safety is, is really unbelievable. On uh, the clinical trials that uh, the FDA is going to be evaluating, they were using huge doses of this, as much as 2,500 milligrams a day, two and a half grams, and that's just the, the CBD content. Um, uh, but the side effects were really minimal and related to just the combination with uh, some other sedative medications that the children in the, the study needed to have. Uh, so it's an incredibly versatile and non-toxic agent, uh, right? 
it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when um, uh, large doses of CBD become available to the public. I mean, at this point, we're just happy to have CBD at all, but the price is still so high where people are you know, taking 10 or 20 milligrams a day and hoping to get the results that they're looking for. Whereas, you know, the research on rheumatoid arthritis, um, the research was using 200 milligrams a day. And, and, and that kind of, uh, that kind of affordable access is just not in the market yet. Um, yeah, you, you've raised a very important point. Uh, I've mentioned how versatile and safe this is. It's not potent though. Uh, potent sounds like a good thing. All it means is that the number of milligrams you need a day is higher for this, much higher than corresponds to THC. Now, that's a problem only if it uh, does produce side effects or it makes it more expensive. So we've got one aspect that isn't a problem, the number, and the second that is. Um, CBG, CBD often requires higher doses, particularly in these very severe seizures, uh, particularly when it's used in isolation, um, and that does make it really expensive. So that that is apt to remain a problem, I'm afraid. Yeah, for at least in uh, until uh, until the legal situation changes and uh, this is available from its source, uh, the plant called cannabis. Right on. So, um, so before we move into um, the terpenoids, um, I, I'm curious to know. So, you know, your your taming THC paper that we that we went through in uh, episode 11 um, is kind of like the, the the precursor to this paper. Um, I was curious what your motivations were to revisit um, the cannabis terpenoids and expand it. For for a lot of scientists, going back and and reviewing the same error area um, might not be, you know, they, they might not have that much passion for it. But, but in, in fact, this new paper is, is uh, more detailed and, and larger than the Taming THC. What were your motivations for, for coming back and looking at Terps again? Well, it was twofold. I mean, the simple explanation is that uh, it was in, I was invited uh, to write this piece and joined uh, Jehan Marku in doing so. But additionally, it's been seven years since uh, I wrote uh, Taming THC, and there are always advancements. Um, additionally, since we only covered about eight uh, terpenoids in the last paper, I wanted to give more attention to... Uh, what is a much uh, larger cast of available characters. Uh, so, And uh, it was also a chance to add to the uh, treatment of uh, the cannabinoids. Uh, for instance, in the prior paper, we didn't really talk about the acid cannabinoids, the cannabinoids, the way they're primarily produced in the plant. Um, so, yeah, maybe I can just say a couple of words there before we shift into the terpenoids. Um, so, people may not be aware that um, uh, the plant produces only small amounts of THC before we, what we call decarboxylation, meaning that um, tetrahydrocannabinolic acid is what the plant produces primarily. And uh, when it is heated, uh, such as in baking or smoking or vaporization, it knocks out a carbon dioxide molecule and therefore becomes decarboxylated. 
and it turns THCA, which is not overtly psychoactive, into the obviously psychoactive uh, THC. Well, why is THCA important? Well, historically, uh, there was a fair amount of cannabis use raw uh, without uh, heating. Um, this hasn't gotten a lot of attention until recently, but THCA is a really interesting molecule in its own right. Uh, it seems to uh, have some important anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, for example, uh, it antagonizes something called uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha that is important in some autoimmune diseases like Crohn's, uh, ulcerative colitis, and rheumatoid arthritis. THC doesn't do that. CBD does. Uh, so we've got THCA and CBD that, that have this thing in common. Uh, then there's a, a really recent finding. This just came out last week. I think it's going to be extremely important. Uh, THCA is what is called P-par-gamma uh, receptor agonist. Uh, P-par-gamma is a nuclear receptor. In other words, it's inside the cells on the nucleus, and when something stimulates that, it affects transcription of DNA. In other words, it affects the proteins that a cell makes. In the paper that was reported, uh, this is by Nadal et al., just last week in the British Journal of Pharmacology, uh, they showed in animal models that this would be helpful in treating Huntington's disease, but there's much more to it than that because um, things that modulate PPAR gamma like this are also important in treating tumors. Historically, we've got a great deal of anecdotal information about the use of THCA in treating tumors. And so I think this op opens up a whole new uh, area of investigation that needs a lot more attention. One other point, um, and this is mysterious, there's been a lot of debate about whether THCA binds to the CB1 receptor. There have been articles that say that it does, ones that say that it doesn't. Um, the best evidence right now is that it doesn't bind to the receptor, that um, often it may turn into THC through spontaneous decarboxylation, and that probably accounts for that. But either way, people are using THCA, often in very low amounts, uh, to treat seizure disorders that aren't responding um, to, say, CBD alone. Um, and again, this might have something to do with that PPAR gamma receptor, but we don't know yet. So this is uh, speculation at this point, but something that's very exciting as a possibility. It seems yeah. that every time we turn around that there's a, there's a bunch of new doors being open for cannabis-related research. Uh, we just had your, um, your compatriot, uh, Natasha Riz, on the show talking about root balls. And essentially, the entire interview with her, you know, she kept on pointing out, and here's an opportunity for more research, and here's another cool opportunity for research. And it, it seems you know, so exciting that there's, we're getting more flexibility to do the research, but also as we open doors, doors cascade open. Right. Well, that's true. And that is a good explanation for why after 20 years, I still find this exciting. There are always <laughs> new opportunities. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about CBDA. 
So CBDA or cannabidiolic acid is the acid cannabinoid precursor of cannabidiol in the plant. Uh, so this is uh, the primary product that hemp will make. Um, and um, it's also very interesting. Again, not overtly psychoactive. Um, and we've got all these historical reports about it being helpful in tumors. That really hasn't been investigated either. What we do know is that like THCA and THC and like CBD, CBDA is, is very effective in treating nausea. All four of the substances are. But what is particularly interesting is that CBDA uh, doses are about a hundredfold lower uh, than CBD in producing this effect. Uh, so that's been tested in animals. It hasn't been done in humans yet. So there's another experiment uh, that uh, needs to be done. We're going to be hearing that refrain a lot uh, today, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking so as well. So, hey, before we jump into the uh, terpenoids itself, let's go ahead and take our first commercial. We're going to be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind used during the extraction process. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from true terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make a blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True Terpenes also has strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some alpha-pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or a capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. As cannabis normalization sweeps the country, knowledge of how to grow cannabis naturally and without synthetic inputs has become more and more available. In fact, probiotic growers are experiencing large yields and exceptional terpene profiles without using chemicals banned in their state. Move away from the risks inherent to chemical nutrients and instead invest in your soil. Use your soil again and again, reducing costs and improving the vitality of your soil with each cycle. 
Keep It Simple Organics has been a leader in aerated compost teas for years and now provide premium soils and nutrients to the cannabis industry. They offer a full line of all-natural inputs for building your soil, feeding microbe communities, and brewing nutrient and compost teas. They can even help you test your soil to spot deficiencies that may be holding you back. Check out their website at kisorganics.com. Enter the word SHANGO into the form at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. Stop pouring bottled nutrients on your soil only to throw it out each cycle. Start building living soil that will serve you for years to come. Visit kisorganics.com and grow healthy, thriving cannabis. Welcome back. You're listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, And our guest this week is neurologist and renowned cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So during the first part of the show, we went through uh, THC and CBD and, uh, and their acid forms. And now we're going to dive into the long list of, of terpenoids that you find within the plant. Um, so I want to encourage you to read the paper yourself if you are very interested in this. There's no way that uh, Ethan and I are going to be able to go through you know, teaching the entire paper today. Uh, but what we are going to do is we're going to uh, hit briefly on each of the terpenoids and, uh, and and Ethan will say something that he finds interesting or novel about each, um, but certainly not all the information that's provided in the paper. Um, you can um, easily find the paper uh, to read it um, on the shapingfire.com website uh, at the, uh, the, the episode page for this episode. Um, there will be a link right there on the front page. So, so Ethan, shall we uh, kick it off uh, in order with cannabigerol? Um, <laughs> Well, cannabigerol is back in the uh, cannabinoid section. Oh, it is. All right. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's a neat substance. This is the precursor to uh, uh, THC, CBD, and cannabichromine (CBC). Um, uh, it hasn't gotten as much attention. Usually, the plant doesn't produce a lot um, because it's it it just goes on through to the others, but. There are some chemovars, chemical varieties of cannabis that are richer in CBG, and it uh, portends to be a very interesting compound, particularly uh, for a couple of features. One is that it has strong antibiotic tendencies, particularly against MRSA. That's methicillin-resistant staph aureus, uh, of which there was an epidemic in our hospitals a few years ago. Uh, additionally, high doses of it uh, seem to really uh, knock out uh, prostate cancer cells. Uh, so I think this would be a very interesting agent in the future. I'm glad that you didn't let me skip ahead because we also would have skipped uh, a, a CBC as well, one of my personal favorites. Okay. Well, you know, again, we, we know less there. It's interesting, but uh, THC and CBD are both produced by dominant genes. In contrast, CBC, cannabichromine, is produced by a recessive gene, meaning that it's less commonly produced. Uh, it has some strong anti-inflammatory properties and antioxidant properties. It also is also it's also quite effective on uh, treating uh, various types of cancer. Uh, we don't see a lot of chemovars that are particularly rich in CBC in this country at this time, but again, that can be a target of selective breeding for the future. 
One of the things that I found interesting about CBC is that you know, while while many of the cannabinoids um, help with uh, inflammation and have a role in pain, um, it, it seems to me that the method that CBC uh, goes about to do that is different. Whereas most are using the endocannabinoid system, um, but these are using uh, TRPs, transient receptor potentialcation channels. Can you explain the difference between those two uh, methods of fighting inflammation? Well, actually, there's overlap for all of these, mm. um, but the trip channels are um, interesting. It's another important uh, modulator of pain. Uh, and in each instance, there's some particular plant that uh, is uh, apt to stimulate one or another receptor. Um, but uh, to give an example, CBD works on the same receptor as capsaicin, the active ingredient in chili peppers. Um, as I mentioned, CBG works on uh, TRPM8, uh, where menthol from peppermint works. Um, so there, you know, it really to me highlights the fact that uh, we grow up, grew up in an environment where we're exposed to plants uh, that affected uh, our biochemistry, and uh, for most of human history, plants have been medicine. It's only in the last, uh, say, three generations. Uh, that we've relied primarily instead on these uh, synthetic molecules to try and replace what we previously got directly from nature. Yeah, and with uh, with uh, differing uh, uh, effects too. <laughs> right, not always good. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk about CBN. You know, one of the things that I think um, has been interesting is that folks have been focusing on first THC, then CBD, and then more recently CBN. And and I think that to a great degree, um, people's uh, attention to these cannabinoids increases because we just get a uh, uh, the ability to extract it at a way that that makes it affordable to put into some sort of product. And so CBN has been popular recently simply because the extraction is possible. And so people are experimenting with it, especially for its uh, you know, sedative and, and sleep-inducing qualities. Yeah, and I think that's been exaggerated. Um, for people not familiar, CBN or cannabinol is a normal oxidative breakdown product of THC. So if somebody has uh, cannabis in a bag uh, that's exposed to light or heat or just sitting out for a long period of time, the THC will gradually turn into CBN. CBN is about a quarter of the potency of THC at the CB1 receptor. It has a reputation as being sedating, but it really isn't strongly so. Rather, um, it gets this reputation from the fact that old cannabis uh, also loses some of the lighter uh, molecular weight terpenoids and then will retain some of the stronger, um, more sedative sesquiterpenoids. And um, because of that, uh, Old cannabis is apt to be sleep-inducing, uh, so I think there's a bit of a misconception there. Uh, beyond that, uh, there aren't a lot of really outstanding properties of CBN 
uh, that merit a tremendous amount of attention. I would have to be honest and say that I think a lot of the uh, current excitement about CBN is uh, that some producers realize that they can use old or otherwise unusable cannabis and tout its uh, CBN concentration as, as something uh, desirable. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting compound, but it's not uh, the top of my list of the most interesting. Right on. Well, now we finally really are at the terpenoids. And one of the things in your intro to this section that I found interesting is you mentioned that there's you know so, as many as 200 terpenoids described, although some are artifacts of steam distillation. What does that mean? It means that if you take this material and you heat it, it's going to turn into something that the plant didn't make originally. Um, so it, it gives you a big number, but... Um, it it wouldn't uh, be the way uh, it was originally, um, but to put it in context, um, probably about fifty uh, terpenoids are routinely found in uh, the kinds of chemovars of cannabis that we have in North America, but of those, seventeen are most common, uh, and hopefully we'll hit most of those today. Uh, several of these are really predominant, um, and my colleague um, Mark Lewis has put these into eight classes. He calls terpene superclasses, and these are myrcene, terpenoline, osamine, limonene, alpha-pinene, humulene, linalool, and beta-caryophylline. Uh, so certainly those deserve more uh, attention because these are things that people may encounter in uh, the cannabis of commerce. Um, some of the others are fascinating, but uh, they may not be around uh, in any particular amount. I was really happy to read that term, uh, terpene superclass, in this paper over the weekend because um, uh, I had heard you use that phrase uh, during a live event. Um, uh, actually at Vimea a couple years ago. And, um, and, and when I heard it, I didn't write it down. And I was trying to remember because I'm like, man, that, that's a, that'd be a cool t-shirt. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then when I read it, I'm like, yeah, that's the term I was trying to remember and, and could not remember. Um, so when, when, when we describe the positive health benefits of these terpenes, um, are we generally talking about uh, in, inhalation being the method of, of intake or, or is it, is it really terpene specific that, that some of them will be for um, inhalation while others we would have to, you know, take orally somehow just to be able to get enough of it in our body? Well, it could be either, but uh, it is true to say that uh, most of these are going to be most active and noticeable uh, when vaporized or smoked. Um, when taken orally, a lot of these are broken down very rapidly in the liver, and so uh, even with a large amount, the effects may not be as noticeable. But all of them are absorbed. It's just an issue of how fast uh, some of them may be broken down. I should also add that uh, if they're applied topically, a lot of these do get into the circulation. That's been proven uh, through testing blood levels. So um, things like aromatherapy massage can be very active with respect to these compounds. 
Hmm. Um, so let's let's uh, start with what is arguably the most popular or at least well-known uh, uh, terpene. Um, everyone's favorite, well, maybe not everyone's favorite, but beta, <laughs> beta-myrcene, because people love to talk about it so much. Well, I, it is clear that it is far and away the most prevalent uh, terpenoid in uh, cannabis available in both North America and Europe. Um, it's not my favorite just because... Um, it is quite sedating. Um, that's not what everybody needs in their medicine. But let, let's get to the positive first. It is an anti-inflammatory. Um, it helps prevent certain kinds of cancer. Um, it has analgesic properties, and this is interesting. The way it works is through a narcotic-like effect. It can be blocked by the drug naloxone uh, that's used to... Uh, give to overdose uh, patients. Um, So that's a fascinating kind of thing. And it it is exactly that narcotic effect, what's colloquially called couch lock, that myrcene produces in combination with THC. On its own, I think it's a pretty mild sedative, but in combination with THC, they really synergize each other to produce a very strong uh, narcotic uh, sedative effect. So that's c- good for sleep, obviously. But um, what I'm seeing, uh, I was at, uh, spoke at an event in Portland, Oregon, uh, the Cultivators Classic, where they gave awards to all the organic growers. Uh, and they had three divisions sun grown, greenhouse, and indoors. And they had in each three uh, high THC, chemovars high CBD chemovars, and what we call type 2 cannabis, equal amounts of uh, THC and CBD. So there were nine awards. All nine of the winners were predominant in myrcene. And my thought was, gee, it's worse than I thought, um, because all cannabis isn't like that, nor should it be, uh, because there are a lot more beneficial properties that we could observe uh, in use of cannabis medicinally if we saw more of the variety that uh, the plant can produce. Do you suspect that you saw so much myrcene um, because that's what breeders are breeding for because so many folks uh, appreciate and enjoy myrcene? Or do you think that's just the cultivars that we happen to be choosing from and we and, and not as many people are going back to land races? That's it. The latter is the case. I'm, I'm afraid that a generation of people may not know any other way. Um, And that's why, again, uh, people of a certain age may wax prosaic about uh, the cannabis of their youth. And admittedly, it wasn't as strong in general, but it had properties that um, might be harder to define today because of this lack of diversity in the terpenoid profile of the available cannabis. Um, I've talked to a lot of old guys and I use that term advisedly, uh, who feel exactly <laughs> the same way. Uh, so, yeah, no, it, it, and I, I think we can, we can bear this out uh, if we look at the analyses of, of these materials. But uh, it's the case that a lot of people may find it hard to uh, run into anything that's not mercine dominant in the terpenoid profile. 
no wonder people are, are spending so much money for old classic seeds to hopefully unlock some of those old school terps. Sure. Well, the problem, and I think you've alluded to this, is that we've lost the land races. A land race is a cannabis that's been grown for several generations in the same locale. So it has become adapted to local conditions. Um, and for example, um, old Colombian or Jamaican or Afghani or Moroccan, um, a lot of those uh, types of cannabis have been lost. They've been replaced by seeds from California and uh, the Netherlands um, that, again, are more homogeneous. A uh, good example is the Mersine dominance. Um, they all, those plants also may not be adapted to the local conditions. In contrast, the land races uh, would know, the plants would understand that we need more of this terpenoid uh, to prevent uh, fungal growth, or we need more of that terpenoid uh, to prevent this uh, insect predator. Um, so that adaptation has been lost along with some of the richness uh, both biochemically and in terms of therapeutic potential. Uh, a couple years ago at Emerald Cup in uh, Sonoma County, I was talking with a cannabis breeder from Coastal Seeds named Bamboo. And Bamboo uh, was telling me about how as he travels his world, uh, travels the world trying to collect land races, um, it, it, it upsets or scares him or disappoints him to see so many people uh, trading uh, hybridized Western seeds with locals there who then grow them and then... Uh, 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 dilutes the original land races. And, you know, I can totally see why locals would want to be experimenting with hybridized medicine, medicinal seeds from the West. But at the same time, it's like going back to, a, it's like going, going to a clean pond and just, just dumping something in it, uh, where no longer it will, is it a reserve for those genetics? Uh, sure. I'm, you're bringing up a good analogy to why do we have Atlantic salmon uh, escaping into the wild of the Salish Sea? Um, it's not uh, going to be good from an ecological standpoint. Yeah. So, uh, so let's move on to uh, limonene. Well, limonene, uh, I think, is a great one uh, that we need to see more of. Uh, I think this is a good example of a terpenoid that was more prevalent in the olden days, um, and certainly selective breeding should bring this back because this is a really valuable component. Limonene is going to be familiar to everyone as the scent of citrus rinds, and there's a reason that why while you walk down the aisle in the supermarket on uh, the detergent section that you're assaulted with a lemon scent on um, that is because this has a psychological association in our minds with cleanliness and a sunny emotional state. Um, in fact, just uh, that smell will uh, produce a mood elevation. Uh, this is a strong antidepressant that also modulates the immune system. Uh, beyond that, um, it is uh, antibiotic. Uh, it has quite a, a strong activity against a variety of tumors. Uh, but I think we need more limonene in this for its ability to elevate mood, which is uh, something that's necessary in almost all chronic diseases where uh, cannabis is necessary. Um, 
Additionally, uh, it seems to be an antidote to some of the less desirable effects of THC. Um, And this has been uh, alluded to repeatedly historically, uh, the use of lemon juice, which has limonene in it, uh, as an antidote to uh, THC intoxication. Um, what is this, you know, in, in citrus essential oils, um, uh, they have this, uh, you describe it as they display radical scavenging abilities. What does that mean? I don't know what a, a radical scavenging ability in, at this level would, would mean. Okay. Uh, well, we're talking about free radicals. Free radicals are associated with cell aging and death. Uh, the older one gets, the more free radicals you are. It's sort of like rust um, that involves uh, the cells of the body. Um, so, in a sense, uh, something that uh, vanquishes these free radicals will have an anti-aging effect um, and preserve the cells in a more youthful state. Uh, so, that's what we're talking about here. Um, we get the same kind of effect through a variety of antioxidants, things like polyphenols, flavonoids, which are also in cannabis. Um, and this comes from a, a varied vegetable-based diet. Um, and so, you know, there's a reason that uh, people who eat a lot of fruits and vegetables live longer, and it's related to this as one important factor. One of the things that uh, most people enjoy about um, limonene is how it puts you in a better mood. It gives you that that little spike of serotonin and just generally makes you happier. And when when I'm meeting people and explaining terpenes to them who are new to cannabis, I always mention, you know, you, you, you cut into an orange at home and you smell it and, it and it just feels like a sunny day, like you said earlier. Why do you think uh, we may have evolved to have that reaction to limonene? Well, you know, it probably relates to selective hunger. This is a pleasant scent. Uh, it's providing something nutritionally that we really need. Um, you know, and um, I think it's the natural state of things, and people can question it or um, get metaphysical about it. But, um, you know, I think one problem in modern society is uh, we think we can do it better than nature. I personally don't agree with that um you know i think that there's a lot of innate wisdom that comes through our suppressed human instinct uh and uh you know it is a case of if it feels good do it in this instance so there's no downside um so you know if that uh orange or lemon or lime smells good i think you should indulge (laughs) <laughs> right on. Uh, the next one in our list is uh, beta-osamine. And I just want to start with um, uh, hearing your story behind uh, the trained honeybees that were proposed to replace sniffer dogs. I had not heard about that until I read your paper. Uh, well, that factoid came from Jehan, uh, but this was reported. Um, uh, you know, it, again, uh, Honeybees and insects in general are incredibly well adapted, and one of their abilities is to hone in on this particular chemical. Um, So um, it is the case that um, a lot of these terpenoids are signaling molecules for insects, either to repel them or attract them. Um, uh, This one's an attraction. 
Otherwise, osamine is going to be most familiar to you as one of the primary scents in basil, uh, you know, that you use in your pesto or that kind of thing. Unfortunately, in this one, although it's uh, relatively common in uh, chemovars in California, we don't know a lot about what it does. Um, we know that uh, essential oils that have it have had a lot of interesting activities against fungi, against tumors, um, even uh, reducing seizures, but it really hasn't been tested a lot on its own. So I can't tell you what the psychopharmacological effects are um, of osamine itself, but uh, clearly that's something we'd like to look into and fill in the, the gap that we have in our knowledge. How about the two terpenines? Well, uh, I'm going to hesitate to say a lot here. These are components of uh, both uh, pine uh, resins and uh, tea tree oils. Um, they're pretty minor components on um, cannabis. And again, we don't have a tremendous amount of uh, human work from which to draw conclusions. Um, but that would allow us to move on to the much more interesting alpha-pinene. Um, to me, this is a truly amazing molecule. Uh, it may sound familiar because uh, it comes from pine needles and, and other conifers, which we're pleased to have in abundance here in the Northwest. And at this time, I'd invoke a phenomenon uh, from Japan. Uh, they refer to a term called uh, Shinrin-yoku, um, which is, translates as forest bathing. And this is the idea that uh, when you need to escape the urban jungle, um, you go into the woods to clear your head. Um, and that's just not a sight and sound thing. It's definitely a smell slash uh, psychopharmacological thing uh, because uh, particularly in this area, when you walk in the woods, you're exposed in the ambient atmosphere to a high dose of alpha-pinene. Alpha-pinene's major claim to fame is that it is able to block or reduce one of the primary side effects of THC, that being short-term memory impairment. Uh, this is the idea that you lose your place in conversation and everyone laughs about it. Um, well, that, that's fine if somebody's relaxing at the end of a bad work week. But for the patient who needs to work or study um, and treat their pain with cannabis during the day, um, you don't need that kind of impairment, as amusing as it might be in a different context. Uh, rather, if you can suppress that short-term memory loss uh, with pining, this is a big advantage. Beyond that, it's got a lot of other interesting properties. It's a broad-spectrum uh, anti-inflammatory and antibiotic. Um, it uh, works on uh, such things as parasites, uh, some of the uh, parasites involved with malaria uh, and the like. Um, it's another modulator of THC overdose. Um, pine nuts were recommended in ancient times to counteract uh, intoxicating effects of cannabis. Um, and um, 
we know it reduces anxiety in mice who are exposed to it. Uh, there's just any number of uh, great properties to this. And unfortunately, it's usually found in only small amounts in uh, the, the chemovirus of commerce. Uh, but that's something that uh, can be changed. Uh, selective breeding can make it a, a very prominent component. On uh, I think that chemovirus that do have that kind of profile are going to be much more valuable uh, to patients who, again, uh, need to concentrate and uh, have symptom relief at the same time. You describe it as being larvicidal, and actually a few of these are, and, and it makes sense since uh, terpenes are uh, used to defend the plant from insects, but very specifically, are, is the application of being larvicidal, is it the idea that you would use this terpene in some kind of spray to, to kill the larva before... Uh, these mosquitoes are born or are you talking okay okay i wasn't sure exactly well it could be in the body it could yeah. be environmentally i mean something we really haven't discussed is the industrial right. applications of uh, cannabis extracts um there are any number of ways these could be used as antiseptics antibiotics um even herbicides on uh, the case of uh, uh thca and cbga and um now, this is one versatile plant. It's not just all about uh, what's good for humans. Um, uh, medicinally, uh, the industrial applications are, are really legion and uh, to a great extent let, yet to be exploited uh, to their, their full extent. Do you want to say anything about beta pining before we move on? Uh, no, just uh, that it's another <laughs> one that uh, it's pretty common. Um, it's just not been investigated uh, very much, so we don't know a lot about it. It might do some of the things that alpha pinene does. It might uh, might not. Uh, we just don't have the answers. I mean, I, to be honest, when I was researching this paper and creating a stack of articles to go through to write it, uh, I was both surprised and frustrated in certain instances with the fact that uh, we had some of these components that were really pretty common, but uh, our knowledge was uh, pretty bad in comparison. So uh, that's a good example. Well, it's not very exotic. Uh, our next one, linalool, is, is actually one of my favorites because I tend to be, you know, a pretty excited guy. And so um, I find that any opportunity to get linalool, it just cools my spirit and calms me down. It was no surprise to me to find out that it was also a sedative and antidepressant because it just made me feel like a, you know, some kind of hug from nature. Well, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, this is a very versatile uh, component. Uh, not uncommon, but I, I think we should see more of it. And the sedation that it produces is quite different uh, than that of uh, myrcene, which is more of narcotic. Uh, linalool is sedating without being sleep-inducing necessarily. Um, but beyond that, uh, a lot of other great qualities. It's a very, very strong local anesthetic. It can, um, as uh, lavender oil, help prevent uh, blistering after burns. Um, uh, also reduces the pain in, in quick, uh, quick amount of time. Um, additionally, uh, it's a 
apparently a very potent anticonvulsant. Um, my colleague um, Dustin Sulak has reported that very small amounts of this have made the difference in seizure control uh, for some children with epilepsy. Um, and uh, that goes along with the animal experimental data that we have as well. Um, and uh, again, uh, pretty strong uh, antibiotic uh, for bacteria. Um, and um, uh, all around a good, good component. Linalool for me was my gateway terpene, if you will. You know, <laughs> uh, growing up, uh, you know, I know this is a, a generalization, but generally speaking, um, uh, boys when they are raised are not given much aromatherapy as presents, right? Those are those are more presents that girls tend to be given. And um, as I got older, I was at a uh, a, a work Christmas party. And it was one of those, I forget what they call them, like white elephants where everybody kind of trades the gifts. And I ended up leaving that event with a uh, lavender eye pillow, um, which I had never had an eye pillow before, but I took it home and I, and I laid down and I put it over my eyes and um, it was just totally blissful. I'm like, well, why does lavender do this? And then I found out about linalool and off, off I went. But I think that for a lot of people, uh, linalool is one of the first that they become cognizant of simply simply because it's so available in lavender um, all throughout the country. Yeah, quite true. And um, just to expound on your experience, um, lavender oil and um, linalool uh, related to cannabis has been used clinically to treat uh, dementia patients for their agitation and uh, has resulted in uh, marked improvement, better sleep at night, and uh, overall adjustment. Uh, so, yeah, very uh, therapeutic agent. I haven't heard anybody talk about camphene yet as, uh, as, as, as a, you know, being attached to any particular uh, strain. Was it, was it, was, is it hard to find in the, in the stock for research? Uh, yes. Uh, not one. I mean, it's not uncommon. It's a little less common in cannabis. Uh, to our friends in the Northwest, uh, the scent might be familiar as a component of that uh, from the needles of Doug, Douglas fir. Um, but beyond that, it does have interesting properties. It's just not one they're going to run into in any particular amount. And the same would be true of philandrine. Um, uh, which is found on a greater amount in frankincense, um, but not uh, so common in cannabis. One of the things about camping that really stood out for me was it's um – what was it, the weight loss that is uh, attributed to it? And in the studies, you know, the the 17% the body weight reduction versus the control, that's that's heavy duty. Ah, uh, yeah. And, you know, it, it is a, excuse the expression, food for thought or less <laughs> food for thought. Um, but, you know, I think it's going to take a lot to selectively breed for this in cannabis. Um, it certainly merits more attention and research um you know but um that one's not going to be super accessible when when uh camphene is used to induce apoptosis uh, in cancer cell lines um how is that usually um uh, given to the patient is it is it inhaled or i would think that at at that high of a dosage something more like a capsule might might be more effective yeah, it's true. A lot of these um, 
terpenoids and the cannabinoids as well require pretty large doses uh, to treat cancer. And it, this is either in cell lines or animal work. Um, with caffeine, this hasn't been done in humans. Um, the concentration that they were discussing was pretty high. It would take a lot, and it would likely have to be provided in, in concentrated capsules. Um, I don't think that anybody should try to inhale enough cannabis, particularly caffeine, uh, to try and produce this effect. Yeah, when it's a when it's a minor terpene, you'd have to, you know, you'd be causing lung damage just trying to get to it. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, and our next one, uh, terpinaline. Uh, I found it very interesting that uh, terpinaline seems to be sedating in mice, but it's stimulating in humans. Yeah, you've put your finger on one of those uh, paradoxes. Uh, shows the people need to keep in mind that rats are not people. Um, in comparison to people, their cortex, the higher brain centers, are pretty rudimentary. Um, that's not to impugn rodents. It's just the way it is. Um, but um, we've got a real discrepancy here. Terpinaline, uh, when abundant in cannabis, is associated the with the buzz effect. Um, and that might relate to this acetylcholinesterase inhibition that we talked about in relation to pinene. Um, but um, again, this has rarely been tested uh, on its own. Um, but you know, it may be that uh, the difference is that on its own, in the animals, it's sedating, but that it has a very different effect in conjunction with THC. So that's one of the issues that we should tease out through further research. And believe me, um, I'd like to get to this one. Um, we've got others in line for formal investigation first, but uh, it, it's definitely in the top 10 of ones I'd like to look at more thoroughly. You've already hit on uh, philandrine a little bit, but let's let's wrap that one up uh, before we go to commercial. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add on it? Uh, let's see. Again, um, some effects as uh, an antibiotic, um, some effects in uh, cancer. Uh, well, you know, I, I guess I'd like to stick to the ones where we've have a greater likelihood that people are going to encounter them in a particular amount. So that also um, gets us away from catenine and carine, um, maybe even cymine. Um, uh, actually, uh, the rest uh, in the article, I, I think we've hit uh, the major ones that uh, deserve the most discussion at this point. Right on. Well, then, um, before we come back, I wanted, I do want to hit the um, the uh, the sesquiterpenoids. But before, let's uh, take our second commercial break and come right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neurologist and cannabis researcher Dr. Ethan Russo. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes, though, the best parts are buried inside the plant, and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. 
Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. Eden's cold finger ethanol extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you will be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. If you grow cannabis with sunshine, you can often feel limited by the seasonal cycle. You want to grow sustainably and save money, so you use as little electricity as possible. But if you haven't studied or implemented light deprivation techniques into your greenhouse, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. By incorporating light deprivation solutions into your greenhouse, you can often add two or three additional growing cycles to your year. When you pencil out the financial benefit of those additional cycles, you'll realize why commercial-scale light deprivation technology is remaking the cannabis industry. What used to be done by pulling tarps over hoop houses has been scaled up over the last few years in such a way that it's become mechanized, easy, and affordable to even small-scale commercial cannabis operations. Forever Flowering Greenhouses is the industry leader in light deprivation, greenhouse design and operation for the commercial cannabis industry. Their team of greenhouse experts have been in the fields of Northern California for decades, and they're now building greenhouses for commercial cannabis companies across the country. If you are new to light dep and growing in greenhouses, I encourage you to go back to Shaping Fire episode 13 with guest Eric Brandstad of Forever Flowering. I talk with Eric about the importance of intelligent greenhouse management as well as the huge financial benefit of incorporating light depth techniques. There are so many aspects of utilizing a greenhouse that can go wrong. From temperature and airflow to light depth and workflow, Forever Flowering will help you produce crop after crop of well-cared-for flowers. They can help you retrofit your existing greenhouse with light depth and other modern systems at a level that fits your budget. If you're just starting out, Forever Flowering can help you plan and build your new greenhouse so that you get started on the right foot. The cannabis business has enough risks without trying to go it alone with your greenhouse. Contact Forever Flowering Greenhouses to partner with folks who have an indisputable reputation as knowledgeable and easy to work with. 
Go to shapingfire.com forward slash FFG to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is neurologist and renowned cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Ethan Russo. So in this last section of the show, we're going to talk about uh, the cannabis sesquiterpenoids uh, that are here in Dr. Russo's new paper. And we're going to start with beta-caryophylline. Yeah, this is a really amazing molecule. Um, uh, to me, it remains fascinating 10 years later that uh, caryophylline is not only a terpenoid, but it is also a cannabinoid in its own right. Uh, because my colleague, your Garrett, figured out that uh, this is a high-potency selective agonist stimula stimulator of the CB2 receptor. So it has this ability to be a very strong analgesic painkiller and anti-inflammatory agent uh, without being intoxicating. Um, and uh, this follows on uh, generations of human knowledge of its benefit uh, for similar kinds of uses. Uh, it's a component of uh, Peruvian balsam that's been used in South America forever um, for its healing properties. But beyond that, um, it also has uh, proven a benefit in uh, addiction uh, to various substances, particularly cocaine. Uh, and that's something that we're trying to study clinically, uh, particularly a combination of caryophylline with cannabidiol looks to be very uh, powerful, uh, hitting addiction in two totally different ways. Um, so... Given particularly the problems uh, with the opioid epidemic, this is the kind of thing that we need right now. And uh, we're trying to get this studied formally in, in humans. Caryophylline, as it appears in uh, black pepper, is also really good in case somebody uh, accidentally over-medicates on THC too, isn't it? Uh, yeah, you know, it, the black pepper is... Uh, has a bunch of components uh, that can be helpful in this regard, uh, but certainly caryophylline is one of them. You know, uh, we talk about um, uh, the neuroprotectant um, aspects of CBD pretty regularly, and and when you dig into that, you can you know learn how um, uh, CBD will buoy the endocannabinoid system, which then kicks off the the taking out of the trash of the brain, removing the the plaque on the synapse ends. Um, one of the things about beta caryophylline though is that it's a cardio protectant, and I don't know what that would mean. Um, I understand the neural, so how how does it act as a cardio protectant? Well, in this instance, um, it can be a variety of ways, uh, particularly uh, relating to um, helping to prevent hardening of the arteries, uh, atherosclerosis. Um, and so I think that would likely be the most important effect. Hmm, right on. So our uh, next one is uh, closely related, uh, caryophylline oxide. Yeah, well, a couple of claims to fame here. One is that uh, this seems to be the component that sniffer dogs uh, hone in on uh, when uh, trying to identify cannabis. Um, the other one is, uh, again, something that we really need to look into. Um, it treats nail fungus, onychomycosis, uh, and seemingly a lot better than the available drugs, which have to be used for months and months, have a low success rate, and are extremely expensive. Uh, so this might be the better bet. 
So how would it, uh, I asked this question because I actually have a little nail fungus right now, uh, which is probably not something I should say on the show, but um, uh, so how does one actually apply that? Do you just apply it directly to the nail? I would be in this instance on the experiment I'm referring to. They they mention an 8% concentration of caryophylline oxide. Um, the easier and more legal way to do that would probably be to use uh, Melissa officinalis essential oil. That's lemon balm. Now, people need to be careful because um, – this is an extremely expensive essential oil. It's hard to make. Uh, there aren't as many trichomes on uh, the lemon balm as some other plants. Uh, so you want to make sure it comes from a good quality source and isn't diluted. Um, but I imagine um, that applying that very lightly, uh, neat to the nail, uh, uh, in the experiment, they referred to uh, benefit in a couple of weeks. So um, normally with uh, the oral agents or even the uh, topical ones that are available uh, by prescription, you're treating for months and months and months. So Right on. Well, this will be a fun experiment to do myself. And uh, if it works, I will post my results. <laughs> Great. So the next one is uh, the bane of fruit flies everywhere, humulene. Humulene. Well, this is uh, one of the most uh, prevalent uh, terpenoids in hops. Hops is a close relative of cannabis, um, and it is fairly prevalent in some of the chemovars of commerce, um, particularly in California. Unfortunately, this is another example of one where we don't have a lot of information about what it does uh, psychopharmacologically. In other words, uh, is it psychoactive in any way? Uh, we know it's a strong anti-inflammatory, uh, and now it's quite similar in structure uh, to caryophylline. Um, so it's got some overlap there, but um, despite being uh, such a prevalent molecule, it's it's had very, very little uh, investigation. I mentioned in the paper that it was a major review, a long, long paper on the uh, biochemistry of hops, and they mentioned it, but nothing about what it did. Uh, so that one was a little frustrating. Uh, and again, my whole point in writing this was to come up with uh, – teasers that uh, would be interesting for people and hopefully lead to further investigation. Um, we, we need more information on humulene. I'm not uh, sure which direction uh, people should uh, take uh, to look into it at this point. I, I would say that that goes uh, just as well for uh, our next one, Emmeline, too. Yeah, alamine was a sort of revelation to me. Now, let's be clear. This is not a real common component of cannabis, but when I got into this, there was way too much uh, information because this on its own is an approved drug in China, and they've done something like 60 human clinical trials of it and treating various cancers with some really, really good results in uh, some bad actors such as lung cancer, um, hepatic carcinoma, on uh, certain kinds of brain tumors, uh, also leukemia. 
Um, now, again, in context, they're using very big amounts. I don't think that you'd ever be able to get these uh, from cannabis, even with concentrates. However, that's not the point. The fact is that this, among many others in cannabis, is uh, an agent that seems to affect cancer. What we know about cancer is you don't want one drug. You want a barrage of drugs that can have multiple points of attack against the tumor and shut it down in a way from which it can't recover. Successful treatment of cancer requires that you kill every cell. Um, and uh, if you don't, that's when resistance develops. Um, so there's a premium on getting it right and getting it right as soon in, in the course as possible. So my point is that if we did selectively breed for alamine, we wouldn't get the kinds of doses that they're using in China, but in combination with the many, many other components of cannabis that already uh, have proven benefit in cancer, it just might make the difference. Uh, so I spent a lot of uh, time going through the various uh, reports in the literature about this agent that I previously knew nothing about. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. Is is um, is elamine one of those where um, uh, taking different amounts of it um, can reverse itself? I think that's called bimodal. Uh, a biphasic effect. Biphasic, yeah. yeah. It, what this means is uh, there's some substances, including ones we've previously discussed, where a little bit of it might seem to stimulate growth, but a larger amount inhibits it. Um. Generally speaking, this isn't a great risk. I'm not aware of uh, situations of uh, uh, in world of um, people using cannabis therapeutically and, and producing an increase in tumor growth. So it is one of those theoretical risks. Um, I don't think it's a, a major one at all, though. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one is one that uh, was brand new to me. I had never even heard of it um, before I read your paper, and that's guayol. Sure. Well, guayol is uh, sort of interesting. I mean, its mean claim to fame is that uh, it seems to be particular to uh, cannabis of Afghan origin. Um, and um, uh we know that it, it's got a nice aroma. It doesn't uh, have a lot of toxicity. Uh, it's got uh, some anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects. Uh, we know this much. Additionally, uh, it's uh, a weak 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, so it could be applicable in treating uh, prostate uh, growth in aging men, also uh, male pattern baldness. Um, there have been some effects on tumors. Um, it's uh, bad for insects. Um, you know, but... Uh, you know, it is a, what, what's called a sesquiterpenoid alcohol. Molecules like this tend to produce sedative effects, and maybe that is a contributor to why uh, some of the Afghani um, material uh, tends to have that kind of effect as well. Maybe some of the mystic effects as well. Um, the, myst really. the mystic effects? Right. So I, some people report uh, mystical feelings from 
Afghan genetics. Mm-hmm. Right on. I um, it's just uh, not normally something I hear referred to in the science part, but then I remember that's right. You spent a lot of time studying that side of the plant and uh, and going out to work with the indigenous people. So that that line between science and mysticism is. Uh, is uh, uh, not as sharp for you than most. <laughs> well, I'll take that as a compliment. Yes, that is. <laughs> um, so this, 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 this next one, uh, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. Is it Udesmol? Udesmol is, Udesmol is what I understand. So this is actually, there are several isomers, similar molecules, and it's hard to separate out the effects. Again, we've got various effects, um, um, on seizures and on um, tumors, but um, these are low-level kinds of components, again, more common in Afghani uh, cannabis. Um, I wish I could tell you a lot about uh, the, the psychopharmacological effects, but I uh, really can't. Um, it's a good marker uh, for Afghani genetics. Um, so if this does show up on somebody's analysis, it means that the plant uh, probably uh, had uh, an Afghani uh, ancestor, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is uh, neurolidol. Yeah, neurolidol uh, is a component of citrus, um, low level. It does alter the – it's got a pleasant aroma. Um its main claim to fame is it's a really good carrier for getting other things through the skin mm. uh, and also uh, an anti-malarial um, and uh, some other effects on tumors. There's now confusion uh, between it, uh, whether people are assaying for neurolidol um, uh, or uh, confusing it uh, with gurgenine, uh, another one on the list uh, that's also um, uh, seen sporadically. Uh, gurgenine, uh, I think it's interesting because it's uh, part of the essential oil of, of agar wood, uh, Agularia agalocha, uh, otherwise known as oud. This is one of the rarest and absolutely one of the most expensive of the essential oils. Um, I'm not recommending that people buy it. It it can cost $100 for a drop, um, uh, which is incredible. But I think everybody should try and and, um, uh, sample the aroma if they have the opportunity to go into a a high-level aromatherapy shop. Um, because it, it just has an indescribable aroma, uh, and it makes me wonder about the gurgenine. And um, I haven't had the opportunity to do any work on this, but again, it would be on my list of things uh, that deserve further investigation for their uh, effects on human thought. That your difficulty in describing what it smells like, just put it on my bucket list. I'm, I'm going to need to find that and take a whiff of that. Oh, there's nothing like that. And to expound a little bit, um, this comes not just from the wood, um, but wood that has been infected with a particular fungus. Wow. Uh, unfortunately, the trees involved are uh, endangered throughout Southeast Asia, and that's the reason this stuff is so expensive. It's only the trees that are infected with the fungus, and uh, we're talking about an endangered species, so... 
uh, it's a tough one uh, to come by uh, for very good reason. Um, I, I have some agarwood in the freezer. I got, um, uh, for better or worse, I had a, a medical conference in Dubai and uh, I took a boat uh, to the old spice market and um, got uh, some of the wood itself. So, so when you smell the agar wood that you have, do you smell the gurgenine in it? I mean, does it I, smell like gurgenine? I believe so, but I, I don't have isolated gurgenine to compare. But it's supposed to be a major component of the essential oil. Um, so hopefully, yes. It, it would not necessarily have the richness of the wood itself, but... Um, Again, I, I'm intrigued. I, I would love to have the opportunity to investigate this further. Right on. So the next one's cadenine. Yeah, not too much to say there. It uh, is effective against uh, some of the malarial uh, life cycle. Um, and uh, not, a, not a big component. Right on. And then let's wrap up this section with uh, farnesing. Well, this uh, is going to be familiar to people. Um, it's said to be characteristic of uh, uh, the Western or sativa type uh, chemovars of cannabis. Um, the scent uh, is likened to green apples. Um, and this is one of the rare ones. It's produced by animals as well. As a rule, everything we've discussed are, are purely plant products, but uh, this happens to be something that's common to uh, higher animals as well. So I guess that's uh, those are the fun facts in relation to <laughs> farnesting. I, I really enjoyed this last section of the paper, and um, uh, we're going to go through these these uh, what you call cannabis odds and ends. And and the very first one is one that we discussed uh, last week with uh, uh, Natasha Riz when she was here, and that is uh, Friedland, which is the uh, one of the major active components in cannabis root balls. What would you like to say about Friedland? Well, Friedland's really interesting. Again, I need to emphasize that there are no cannabinoids. Uh, and no monoterpenoids or sesquiterpenoids in the roots. We do have triterpenoids, um, and Fridolin is one of these. So, this is an interesting compound. It's not just present in cannabis, but uh, it's pretty amazing as an anti-inflammatory and uh, treatment for a variety of kinds of tumors. And uh, there's actually been quite a bit of work done on it. And, uh, um, I think the bottom line is um, we've got this material, uh, whether from hemp roots or uh, cannabis drug uh, chemovars, that's just being thrown away at this point. And we know uh, anecdotally that a lot of people um, are using the roots uh, therapeutically to treat inflammation and pain um, as a topical. And uh, to some extent, this has been used orally. Um, but, uh, boy, I, we've got this readily available material, um, probably available free in the right, uh, context. And, um, uh, it's got very promising activity as you no doubt heard from her in greater detail. I would expect that, um, with, with the paper that you and Natasha Riz and, um, 
David Remiard uh, wrote together that has recently come out that there are going to be a lot more people uh, keeping their cannabis root balls for you know at home citizen citizen science this fall. Well, that would be a nice result. <laughs> so, so the epa, the next one on the list, epafridinol, uh, is that just uh, is, is that actually related to f- uh, Friedlin, or do yes. they just have similar names? Okay, no, no, they're closely related. Um, and uh, again, much less work has been done on this, but um, it uh, has some similar activity as an anti-inflammatory and. Um, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, right now we can uh, move along. <laughs> in, in one of the papers, they listed it as a possible anti-aging um, agent. So, you know that that's something a lot of people are interested in. What would you like to say about the cannabis root alkaloids? Well, I just emphasize that uh, after a century of searching for alkaloids in the uh, in the flowering tops and not finding them, they are in the roots. Um, there are a couple that are specific to cannabis, and you can tell from the names: cannabis, I'm sorry, cannabisatavine and anhydrocannabisatavine. <laughs> Apparently, not easy for me to say, um, but um, these are there. Um, it's curious, but uh, in this instance, I had to check uh, with my mentor, um, Raphael Mashulam. On he uh, indicated that um, there just isn't enough of these to go after, and we don't know anything about their activity at this point. So there's another possible grad student uh, project or even a thesis topic. You talk a little bit at the end about um, uh, flavonoids, and, and honestly, mo- only the only real talk I hear about cannabis flavonoids is when we talk about the entourage effect and the importance of using a whole plant medicine that includes the THC, the CBD, the minor cannabinoids, terpenoids, everything together because they all work synergistically together. Um, uh, what would you like to say about flavonoids in this instance? Well. These are really a uh, minor component of the uh, the trichomes or the flowers. They're more going to be in the leaves. But this is a fascinating area. Flavonoids are strongly antioxidant molecules. So when we're talking about anti-aging, preventing these free radicals, the rust uh, as we age, if you will, um, these are the things in our diet coming from vegetables, fruits and vegetables, uh, often with a yellow or red color uh, that are going to be very important in preventing aging, cancer, things of this sort. I'm going to mention one. This is called canflavin A, and it was discovered in the leaves originally, but it was recently found um, that uh, the seed sprouts will produce this at a point when they're not producing any cannabinoids. Um, but canflavin A uh, was discovered about uh, 25 years ago, uh, 30 years ago now, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, they did some initial work on it to show that it was a powerful anti-inflammatory somewhere between aspirin and uh, the strong uh, steroid dexamethasone. Uh, and there it sat for a long time. 
then uh, a few years ago it was discovered that this was in the sprouts and they did more work on it and to find out that it's a very important uh, anti-inflammatory profile that it has in that unlike the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that inhibit uh, enzymes called COX-1 and COX-2, um, it works through different mechanisms. Now, why that's important is those non-steroidals are associated with some really bad side effects. Probably most people are familiar with the stomach burn that can come from the non-steroidal drugs or even just with aspirin. Um, and that often can lead to ulcers or worse, kidney failure. Uh, so after that, COX-2 inhibitors were developed uh, because they wouldn't affect the stomach this way. The problem there is that these are associated with strokes and uh, heart attacks as side effects. So if we've got a potential anti-inflammatory agent that doesn't have these adverse events associated with it, that's really attractive. Um, again, if this can be produced from seeds uh, where there are no cannabinoids, um, uh, with a little change in the law, this could be uh, an important uh, supplement to the diet. Uh, you know, and the, the seeds are so nutritionally packed to begin with, uh, this would be a little bit of a value-added proposition. A gift with purchase, as it were. So the the last uh, the last thing in my notes was to circle back around to the top of the show where you were talking about sprouts. But now you were just talking about the uh, the the canflavin A in sprouts. Was that the right. part that you wanted to come back around to? It sure was. Oh. What a nice bow to put on that package. <laughs> well, Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time and going through uh, this uh, epic in length uh, paper and, and kind of giving it to us in your own words. You know, it's always, uh, it's always great to be able to have access to papers like this that are getting, you know, very specific and give specific dosing and, and is highly referenced. But I find that, you know, folks who really enjoy and nerd out on this stuff, and, and especially anybody who's working with patients, it's really nice to be able to hear you translate it into more of a, a layman's speak so that we can you know, own the meaning of the material instead of just having it as book knowledge. Well, I'm glad I could serve in that capacity. Right on. Well, thanks for being on the show, Ethan. I know your time is really valuable, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks so much. You can reach Dr. Russo at Ethan Russo at Comcast.net, but please understand that Dr. Russo is ne nearly always traveling, so it may take some time for him to respond. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. 